Saturday morning. Rolled around again, folks. Hey, I hope you're having a good one. I guess uh, we're finally starting to feel a little bit like we're supposed to be feeling in December. Although, let's face it, man, how can you knock what we've had already? The weather has been incredible. Um, the uh, We've had snow in the mountains, which, you know, the folks who like to ski and do their thing, they're happy campers. But um, rain down here, and then maybe a little bit of snow as well. But, you know, you don't shovel rain. So I'm a happy camper when it comes to that. Hey, we've got a great show lined up for you today. Talk a lot of things. Uh, we're going to talk about um, about how we spend our money for uh, fish here in the state of Utah. We're going to talk to Gary and to George as per usual. We'll also have Phil Lyman with us, who, um, for those of you who are Attuned to what's going on in the outdoors, Phil was the guy several years ago that took the uh, the ride. He was a county commissioner in San Juan, took the ride. The federal government came in and uh, prosecuted him for taking this ride through an area that um, had been traditionally open to ATV riding. He stayed on the road, but some of the folks didn't. They made an example of him. Um, he ended up uh, being convicted. He wound up doing his time, um, short as it was, but he was on parole. And he and his parole officer got to be good buddies. I think they go out and uh, and have a hot chocolate uh, every time he had to go see him. Anyway, he finished that, decided to run for the legislature, became a legislator, and is one of the best friends that we have in the outdoor community when it comes to uh, multiple use. The state roads, SUA is after uh, contributions and um, there's all kinds of stuff going on, and we've got the legislative session coming up. So we're going to visit with Phil and find out what kind of things we should be looking for, what kind of things we ought to be looking out for, and uh, and find out what's happening with this uh, with this SUA issue, trying to keep the state from uh, taking over some of the roads that traditionally have been state roads for over 150 years. They're mining roads and things of that nature. So we got a lot to talk about in terms of uh, of issues as well for our multiple use and especially off road use. But we're going to start out with uh, a guy who, we before we went on the air today, we were just joking, has become a regular on the show. I'm going to have to start paying the talent fee if it keeps up. But Randy Opplinger, who is the State uh, Division of Wildlife Resources Sport Fish Coordinator, is here to talk to us a little bit about the fish stocking that we did in 2019. And, of course, we are in large measure a put-and-take operation throughout the state, especially when it comes to rainbow trout, but other species as well. Uh, And some of it's used for uh, enhance the fishing. Some of it is used as a means of... um, keeping rough fish down, especially when we're stalking some of those predatory apex predators that are sterile fish, uh, like the tiger muskie and things of that nature. So uh, welcome to the show again, Randy, and uh, thanks. I had you last week. Thanks for this week as well. Yeah, no problem. Glad to be back this week. So the number I got is more than 10 million fish that you stocked throughout the year 2019. That's one whale of a lot of fish. No, that definitely is a lot of fish. We've been we've been busy putting fish out last year. Um, let, let's talk about uh, let's talk about first of all. I mean, we are a put and take fishery in large measure. We do have some natural recruitment, obviously, but this state for a long time has has been catering to a fisherman in terms of stocking and then having them take uh, fish out. I think the first formal stocking was like in 1871. So we've been going for a while. Yeah, no, absolutely. We've been stocking fish for a long, long time here. So as you mentioned, I think 
1871 was the first stocking that we did. But honestly, at that time, what we were doing is we were getting fish from back east. They would throw them on a train, and as they drove out west, they would kind of stop at lakes along the way and throw some fish out. (laughs) That's some of the first stocking we did. And about 1900, we opened our first hatcheries in the state. Real scientific, those first ones, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so talk to me a, a little bit about. I mean, the cost obviously to put in uh, that many fish, and I think uh, poundage wise, it was more than one point one million pounds of fish. There's a cost associated, obviously, with raising fish. You you, you have to spawn them out if you're not taking eggs. Um, you know, you're you're spending the money like you do at Strawberry and Flaming Gorge and other places where you actually take eggs. Uh, and then in the hatcheries themselves, and then raise them to a certain size. That money, that those dollars are significant, uh, obviously, when you're talking 10 million fish. Yeah, I mean, it is fairly significant, but I think the benefit that our anglers get out of these fish is, you know, a lot. And, you know, one thing I'll point out is, you know, 10 million fish sounds like a lot, but there's some, like, walleye that we produce where we're stocking a million fish at a time. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes we're we're putting a lot of small fish out that we don't have to invest too much into before we, we stock them. So talk to me about raising, about deciding how big you 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 plant fish i mean obviously there's a science to it as well it's not simply a matter of uh i lived and grew up on the scott avenue fish hatchery so i know you had the raceways there and then you had the spring pond that that really you put them in before they were ready to plant and i think they were probably about eight inch fish back then back in the 60s but you you've you've got some changing philosophies haven't you over the years as to how you plant those fish in terms of raising them to a certain size and what their survival rate is going to be yeah, that's kind of changed over time as we get more and more data from just how fish perform after we stock them out. But if you kind of look at what we do with our fish, you know, if you look at trout, we stock them anywhere from about 3 inches to 12 inches right now. And what we do is the bigger fish, say the ones that are maybe 9, 10, 11, 12 inches, we stock those in waters where we anticipate people are going to catch them out really quickly. So if you think about like our community fisheries, for example, those are waters where we put in a little bit larger fish. We call them catchable-sized fish just because... We know that, you know, people are going to catch them out within a few days of us putting them in. Then we've got other waters where we'll stock the smaller fish with the idea that these waters have a lot of food for the fish and uh, the fish are able to uh, do pretty well in there and kind of grow up in those waters before they get to a size where anglers catch them. But if you kind of look at what we've done historically, you've seen kind of a push in recent years for us stocking more and more larger fish. We're starting to do more and more in the last couple of years, kind of 12-inch fish. And what that's coming out of is we're finding that these fish actually survive a lot better than some of the smaller fish, like 10-inch fish, for example, that we historically put out. So we could uh, raise them up to a little larger size. We put fewer fish out, but they actually return to the anglers better. So even though we're putting fewer fish, we're putting larger fish out, and anglers catch more fish as a result. And obviously there's a cost when you you raise them those extra couple of inches in size. You've got to keep them in the hatchery. You have to feed them. Uh, I mean, it, it does take more, doesn't it, in terms of resources to get them to that point no absolutely yeah we got to hold on to them for a couple extra months and feed them a little bit more to get right. to that size but you know again if we kind of balance the cost of doing that uh with kind of the return to our angling public we find that it's, it's very worth our investment are we keeping up from a, a, a dollar standpoint that's coming from from license sales and things of that nature your funding sources are we keeping up with what it's costing you the additional cost to to procure fish if you're especially if you're getting from the outside or just the cost of raising them when you're doing it in state 
Yeah, our feeling is right now, you know, we're able to successfully uh, either procure or raise the fish that we need to really meet the, the, the angler demand. So we feel like we're we're keeping up pretty well. I mean, obviously, you know, more money is a good thing. We've got hatcheries <laughs> that need some repairs and some things like that. But, you know, I think as a whole, we're, we're doing our job and we're keeping up as we should. Yeah, I mentioned the Scott Avenue hatchery. That one has obviously closed over the years. But you have, I think, what, 13 operable hatcheries here in the state? Yeah, we currently have 13 hatcheries that we operate. So talk to me about that, because, I mean, Scott Avenue obviously was was in the middle of the, what is now the middle of the city when it started. It was out in the middle of nowhere. That uh, was the, the farm country for the Grant High area, and they were farmers for a reason. Um, but as as society has encroached, several of our hatcheries are starting to be kind of swallowed up, aren't we, by the urban sprawl? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. We've got more and more of our hatcheries are kind of getting swallowed up by the urban sprawl, which, you know, I think sounds like a bad thing. But, you know, honestly, I, I think, you know, we've kind of planned that you know, into the future and we kind of know where that's happening. We've done a lot to secure water and property and things like that to help ensure that we're going to be able to operate hatcheries in most places forever. And then we've got some hatcheries that are, you know, I think going to be in the middle of nowhere forever and ever, so we don't have to worry about those quite so much. Yeah, I mean, Midway is one of those hatcheries that I think urban sprawl. We probably figured Midway would be um, in the middle of nowhere for quite a while, but, boy, that, that valley has grown so much that now it, too, seems like it's almost in the middle of a housing development. No, absolutely. Yeah, Midway's a good example of one where we got more and more houses growing next door. Manaway's another example. Mm-hmm. Camas is one that um, we've got some houses kind of in the area as well. So, you know, like I said, you know, I think we're doing a lot to kind of plan those half trees and make sure that even though we got houses and things pop up around them, that we've got solid water and good property to raise those fish yeah, for a long I, time. I guess the quality of water is the number one issue. It has to stay to a certain level in order to be able to do this. How, what do you look down the line 10, 15 years? Because I'm sure you guys have obviously projected that out for your growth. What do you see? Is, is there a finite, there's got to be a, an end game here where you say we can only do so much when it comes to put and take, or is it an opportunity that we can just continue almost ad infinitum to grow? No, I mean, unfortunately, we can't do it forever, you know, in terms of grow our hatchery capacity. So we're uh, kind of at a point where I think we're looking at adding a little bit of additional hatchery capacity here in the next few years. Uh, we're looking at some work down our Loa hatchery to kind of bring that online. That's been out of operation for a handful of years, but we think that we're going to be able to get that remodeled and make a very nice hatchery down there. But we think that once we do that, it's going to put us at a point where I think we're going to be able to raise the pounds that we need for the next 20 or 30 years uh, within our entire hatchery system, so all 13 hatcheries, to really meet our needs in light of you know projected population growth and things like that. Your move to, to using the hatchery program to produce the sterile fish the hybrids has certainly put more pressure on the hatcheries, but it's given you that tool so you can you can use a predatory fish, use Mother Nature, if you will, to control rough fish and to keep populations in check. That's a relatively new uh, management tool, isn't it, over the last decade or so? Yeah, that's really kind of come up uh, in the last 20 years or so and really turned on over the last decade or so. But like you said, you know, we use more and more of these sterile fish, and that's been a really good thing for us. It provides us a, a good tool we can have out there for controlling, like you said, rough fish. But I think more importantly, you know, because these sterile fish can't reproduce, it mm-hmm. gives us the opportunity to really have a lot of control over their population size. So we don't have to worry about, you know, once the rough fish are depleted, for example, them turning on other sport fish and consuming those and having an effect on our population. So it really helps us kind of 
dial in our management of our fisheries and kind of keep things consistent for our angling public. Now, obviously, most of your fish come from the hatcheries. That 10 million plus that you put in this year, most of them come from our state. You do import some, however. Talk to me about the fish that come from out of state. What are you getting from, what are you not getting, I guess, from our hatcheries that you need right now? Yeah, the big ones we import from water fish. So if you look at channel catfish, that's a big one that we import from out of state. We do some largemouth bass and some bluegill from out of state as well. And, you know, what that really kind of boils down to is here in Utah, uh, we just don't have the water for raising those fish. Um, part of it's because we're such a dry place. And some of it's just water temperatures. You know, when we design a hatchery and build a hatchery, we have to identify a water source to go with that hatchery. And, we just struggled at finding a place where we could construct a hatchery to produce particularly channel catfish and bass and bluegill yeah, with adequate water temperatures for those species. So that kind of forces us to look at other states as sources for them. We were a provider for a certain period of time, especially right after the strawberry uh, wrote known and then the reintroduction of the cutthroat, the Bear Lake cutthroat in there. Are, are we providing fish for other states now from our hatchery program, whether it be the, the cutthroat out of there or, or fish from other areas in our uh, in our state? Yeah, we do trade some fish around with other states. Um, I think a little bit more recently, yeah, we do occasionally trade some trout around, but a lot of our neighboring states have pretty good trout programs themselves, so they're able to meet their needs. But some of the warm water fish are ones where we're starting to run in the surpluses where we've kind of dialed in our hatchery system and we're able to provide to other states. So some that we provide, we provide some walleye from time to time. And this year we had a, <clears throat> excuse me, a big surplus of tiger muskie in our hatcheries, and we're able to provide some of those to some of our neighboring states as well. Well, that's great. I mean, that's that's a species that 20 years ago we never even thought about, in tiger muskie, and, and then the growth of walleye, especially since now you're starting to use some sterile walleye as well. Uh, I think it's a fascinating study, the the fisheries management program that, uh, that you've instituted and that you continue, because the net result is we have one of the best fisheries uh, in the entire country, I think, as far as diversity and everything else in our state. So, um, those 10 million fish, I'm sure, are put to good use. Randy, we really appreciate you taking the time to kind of enlighten us and tell us what's going on because I think everybody here, anybody who, who fishes, anybody who utilize, utilizes that license will tell you it's the best money they spend all year long. It's it's cheap. It's dirt cheap. I would champion your cause if you need a license increase. I'll guarantee you that because the, the, what you get for your money here in the state of Utah is just amazing as far as our fishery is concerned. So keep up the good work. Great job. Yeah, thank you. And I'm sure with the legislature coming up that <laughs> that that's, uh, that's always an issue because budgetary concerns always raise their head this time of year. Yeah, absolutely. Randy, thanks again. Uh, pleasure talking to you, and, uh, and and hopefully you have a little bit slower off-season than you've had during the summer. I know this, the winter ice fishing and everything else continues to take, to take your time and your resources, but hopefully you get a little bit of a break uh, when, this, uh, when the water starts turning harder. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm looking forward to some time off so I can get out and do some <laughs> ice fishing myself here. There you go. All right, Randy, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate the time. Yeah, no problem. Thanks a lot. It's Randy Opplinger, who is the state uh, fisheries coordinator, game fish coordinator, uh, with the information. Ten million plus fish we produce in the hatcheries. I mean, that is an amazing program. We think 1871, the first time we got uh, fish and stocked them, brought them in on trains from across the country, and like he said, dumped them in a lake along the way. Yeah, this one could use some. And now it's a science, and it's a multi, multi-million dollar enterprise, but... 
What does it lead to? It leads to the multi-million dollars we spend in licenses that help fund this thing, too. But I'll tell you, the fisheries guys, give them a break. They do a great job. If you see them out on the job, let them know. Because uh, they really do, I think, provide a, a wonderful resource for this state for the money that we pay. Listen, we're uh, we're long. We're going to take the break. When we come back, we'll be talking with George Summer and um, with Gary Winterton. And then up ahead, Phil Lyman will join us later in the program. We're going to talk about the feds. We're going to talk about off-roading. We're going to talk about what we uh, need to worry about or at least be concerned about in our state legislative session upcoming. So stick around. We'll be right back. And we are back, segment two of this Saturday morning edition of Inside the Outdoors. Welcome to you, everybody. Hope you're having a great weekend. You know, I know a lot of you are getting ready uh, to to head on out if you haven't already done so. Do some Christmas shopping. So uh, I went to the source, the Oracle, the man who... Basically, he's got his finger on the pulse of everything that's new for the outdoors. Uh, George Summer, who spent all those years working at Sportsman's Warehouse. So they would come in, those new those new products would come in, and he would get a chance to see them and, and then explain them to people. And I'm sure a lot of the things that he turned your... Uh, family on to wound up in your on your Christmas uh, in front of your Christmas tree and now uh, are part of your everyday outdoor experience so who better to go to for this Christmas than George Summer and talk to him about the same kind of thing George how you doing this morning I'm doing great. And yourself? I'm doing really well. Um, you know, technology continues to improve. We see so many different different things every year obviously manufacturers come out with something new um, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? What's the exciting stuff for this year? Electronics are so hard to keep up with. That's number one. You and I have talked about about the uh, you know the spot lock, for example, on our uh, uh, on our electric trolling motors and things of that nature. I know that's on your Christmas list. But what are we looking at? What kind of things? Let's talk about maybe the high tech stuff first. What are we talking about that is new and people are going to be really excited about? Well, so you're talking about electronics. We talk about fish finders, and everybody has a lot of um, challenges with fish finders. And some of the, the two top brands have come out with, um, and, and the one I'm most familiar with is Humminbird. They've got the mega imaging, mm-hmm. and, and it's almost like a snapshot of the bottom. Um, the detail is so clear. So if, you, if you're, you know, like me, I, I like to do some bass and walleye fishing and, and it'll help with trout fishing, but that gives me a clear picture of the bottom so I know what structure those fish are hiding on. And uh, I think that's going to be a big, big hit this year. Yeah, I think one of the things that, uh, that I would love to talk to, to the electronics people, the fish finder people about, is making it easier because we've got so many different features on a graph but but accessing them, especially for a guy like my age, and uh, you know, I mean, we have a hard enough time plugging in a toaster. So, um, you know, it's got fifteen different things to to, uh, to to do your bread. So when you get a fish finder that's got side imaging, down imaging, uh, GPS, you know, spot track. Uh, I mean, you name it. It's got so many things on it, and they are starting to simplify things. You know, I mean, we're getting uh, push-button, one-button uh, features, which is, makes things easier. But it will tell you so many things now that you never knew about the bottom of the of the lake or the body of water you're fishing. Well, exactly. You know, there's new mapping programs. One of the key things that, that I'm seeing with these uh, new fish finders is, is um, 
segmented videos, YouTube videos on how to do a particular process mm-hmm. on the fish finder. Um, they're very, very helpful. If you want to learn how to use your side imaging or your down imaging <laughs> or your mega imaging, um, they're short videos that tell you how to use that particular feature. And then there's a whole series of them that cover everything you need to know about your fish finder. So, you know, for a lot of us older folks, uh, we like to see um, rather than read about it, uh, see and touch. And so, you know, have the video on your, your phone while you're in simulator mode, and then you can go through practicing what you need to do to, to access all those features that they come with nowadays. Yep. Okay, so obviously fish finders, electronics like that, uh, as I said, um, trolling motors, you know, I think Minkota has one, been one of the leading, if not the leading um, company to, to have the features. I love the spot lock. I love the anchor lock. You know, you can push the button and it'll hold you right there. It also will interface with your, with your electronics as well to find places. Those are amazing. Uh, other than the electronic side of things now, what else are you seeing out there that um, that, that really excites you? Well, so in, in Terminal Tackle, they've got a couple of new, uh, um, Rapala has a couple of new rigs. One's a Tokyo rig, and the other one escapes me. Um, what they did was they put a little um, uh, blade on the bottom of a treble hook. So oh. if you do a replacement treble on one of your lures, say mm-hmm. the back hook on a, on a jerk bait or a, a crankbait, You've got a little blade back there that adds a little extra flash um, to that bait. That's a great idea. That's something that I know people have kind of kind of played with themselves, especially you know the home lure makers, the people that uh, that want to tinker with the lure. They'll put that little spinner on. The guys that make walleye lures, where they put their own blades and their own beads and everything else, have been known to do that. And I think that's one thing that maybe we ought to talk about on a future show. But customizing your baits, making try, coming up with an idea and and trying something different. Well, that that's where all these came from. Was people trying. Yeah different stuff, you know, give themselves a little bit better edge. Um, and that's, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot more baits that are more realistic, um, you know, whether it's a, a hard plastic bait, a soft plastic bait. Um, they're all looking a lot more realistic. So you can, you know, we always used the term in the old days, match the hat for fly fishing. Well, a lot of cases when you're fishing for bass or other species, you want something that looks very similar to what they're feeding on and in the same size. And so if you go down to, to Sportsman's, for instance, and you look through some of the swim baits in that, yeah, they look like real fish. Yeah. Yeah, they do. There's no question. They catch fishermen, and they also catch fish these days. Uh, let me ask you about clothing, because that's something that no matter what you do in the outdoors, that's a universal gift that someone can use, whether they're actually out fishing or hunting or whatever, or if it's just cold weather gear. Well, and, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that, because I was talking to somebody the other day about, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't have performance layering. No. Um, what we did was we froze it. To, we froze a lot. Logger boots. Um, Remember nowadays, logging boots? You, you, they were just a, <laughs> they were just a leather boot that got wet. We did, we weren't even smart enough to buy most of us to buy silicone or anything on the outside of them. I just remember getting my feet soaked because we had boots that had no insulation. They were just leather. Yeah. Yeah, and, and your feet were always frozen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way nowadays because with all the performance layering from whether it's uh, thermal underwear to, uh, you know, wicking base layers um, to performance socks, um, I've found, I've, I've 
bought into that program. And let me tell you, I, I can go, I have a performance layer of thermal underwear, and I can wear those under a pair of jeans and go ice fishing or out stream fishing in the middle of winter yeah. and not get cold. Yeah, you don't have to have, you know, when we first started layering, we just figured layering was exactly that. We didn't worry about what the material was. We just figured if you had six layers, it was better than four layers. Now you can get by with an underlayer because the material is so good and then just an over the top layer and you're good you're good to go if you if you want to put a waterproof on top of that fine put the Gore-Tex but you can get by with just for the most applications with just underwear uh, thermal or or you know artificial whatever the fu- the uh, fabric is and then just put the Levi's on top yeah and and you know the key thing now is is that's given us the opportunity to, because we're not getting cold, we're actually enjoying the outdoors yeah. longer during the season, um, which is, that's important to all of us that, that love to go out in the outdoors. And so, you know, you don't want to go out and not have a good time because you're froze to death, and you don't want your kids to freeze to death. <laughs> so, you know, you, you get, it makes it fun for everybody, and, and that's the thing that I really like about the new clothing that's available now. Well, George, uh, we appreciate the time you spend with us every week, obviously. The opportunity to look for Christmas gifts, go down to Sportsman's Warehouse. If you got a question or you just need some ideas, check with one of the guys down there. They're happy to take care of you and uh, and let you know what's going on, what is new, uh, what is maybe not new, but uh, something that's on the list of that person you're buying for. Uh, it's everything you can want and maybe then some uh, at your local Sportsman's Warehouse. So, George, thanks for the uh, for the update. We appreciate it, and we'll talk to you next week, okay? Sounds good. Thanks, Steve. And we know what that means. Yes, indeed. He's got the cane pole over his shoulder. He's heading down the road. I guess he's stepping in snow as he's doing it, however, right now. <laughs> it's the only thing that mars this, this idyllic image of uh, of our own Opie, who is, um, well, I guess we're going to relive some sunshine on this week's show tonight because there's no sense in making people feel uncomfortable about the snow. I mean, we're all hoping, yeah, there's some ice fishermen out there that are hoping for hard water. That's great. But most of us are really already missing the sunshine and soft water, aren't we? Oh, totally, man. I, You know what? I- I'm all for the snow, and I do love ice fishing. I'm excited to be out doing it. But, man, there's just something about the sun beating down on the back of your neck when you're mm-hmm. casting off the boat or walking along the stream, those kinds of things. That is summer at its best. Well, and especially, uh, you know, if you, can, if you can combine it with the ATV, which we have done on several occasions over the years, been able to get on the back of an ATV or into a side-by-side and take that ride and then just stop and fish the ponds and the streams along the way. And it, it just doesn't get much better than that. Oh, yeah. And you know what, Steve? That's our flashback holiday adventure for this weekend is fishing these high mountain streams with our mutual friend, Brad Bradley, retired DNR officer down in Manti. And uh, I loved this adventure. I was thinking about it as I was picking the shows that I wanted to show as flashbacks for, through the holiday season. And I think this year... Um, Barring my trip to Brazil, you know, outside of that, let's exclude that one. This was my most memorable and fun, and it's something that I've thought about over and over, wanting to go back, and it's this this show tonight where we're going to go hit these tiny, tiny streams up on the Arapine Trail 
um, on the Skyline Drive. And it was so much fun, Steve, because every little plunge pool in these streams that were two feet wide was loaded with um, brook trout, cutthroat trout, rainbow trout, and we were getting them on those little marabou jigs. It was just rocking fun. The great thing about this, too, is you can replicate this. I don't care who you are. You don't need a side-by-side. You don't need an ATV. You can take your truck up there if you want to do it because you can get to most of these lakes on the uh, the dirt roads that are up there, and so you don't have to worry. There's no costs involved. It's just simply a matter of knowing where to go, and I know you're going to show us that tonight. But, uh, yeah, with Brad, it was amazing because he had really stocked most of those those uh, streams or those little ponds when he was a, a, a CO, a conservation officer. He had been in charge of stocking those things, so he knew from the inception how many fish they were getting, when they got fish, what what had holdover fish because some of those little uh, little lakes did have holdover fish. I mean, there was a nice variety of fish from those little teeny five, four, five inch fish all the way up to some really decent sized fish. Yeah, that's the cool thing. You know, as you talked about about the history of these streams, this one stream is called Six Mile, and you're right. You can drive in a vehicle. I mean, you might even, as I think about it. You could probably go in your in a normal car almost 90% of the way up there mm-hmm. and, and hit this stream in various spots and just have an incredible day. But he stocked it 30 years ago. He told me the story where the fisheries guys called him up and said, we've got a bunch of excess fish, and he's like, I've got them. Bring them to me. <laughs> they took them up on horseback in jugs, and uh, he dumped them along the stream. So every one of these fish that you catch is wild-spawned, They're beautiful. And, you know, lots of them are 6 to 14 inches long. There are some bigger brook trout in there, but they are stunningly beautiful. The fins, everything about them, and the fact that you're kind of stepping over deadfall and working your way up into these little teeny pools, it's like the Uinta Mountains, only you can access it by car or UTV or mountain bike if you want. It's incredible fishing. And, you know, that was... What I loved about it, I think for me, it, there was some type of an emotional connection to my youth of walking some of these little streams that I did as a young kid um, and catching fish. And it, it really brought me back to my childhood, and I absolutely loved every minute of it. Those stories about stocking it on horseback via milk jug, uh, you stop and think about that first segment we had today with Randy Opplinger talking about stocking you know, how many million fish they stock now, uh, 10 million fish. It's amazing when you think about as little as 30 years ago, which is not long in the total scheme of things, uh, they were stocking that area and putting those fish into those lakes. They didn't have much up there. And it just goes to show you again the success of the stocking program. Now we have a vibrant fishery in that Skyline Drive area, all because somebody said, hey, you've got a few extra fish, I know a place to put them. And, um, and they were done through the through proper channels with the CO. But now you've got a great uh, population of fish up there that is just willing, ready, willing, and able. And it's something that if you watch it now, you should plan for it come spring and summer of next year. When that snow gets out of there, boy, it's a perfect time. Those fish have not seen a lure all winter long. And you get those holdover fish, and it's, uh, like you said, natural recruitment. These are fish that are wild-spawned. It's a great opportunity to to participate in fishing the way it used to be. Yeah. And you know what, Steve? You said something that's really important, and that is 
this year, because of the wet winter we had this previous winter and the awesome runoff, these ponds are deep. So there will be great holdover in many of these ponds that connect stream to stream. And so not only will the streams have survived because they do really well, but these ponds are going to have some better growth, better fishing. And if you're out there early, once that snow clears, it should be incredible. And your kids can just catch them left and right. You, you put on a bubble and a fly. You put on a spinner, a cast master, and let your little kids chuck and wind, and they will catch fish. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. It, it is, plus the, the location. I mean, it's as, just as beautiful as uh, you're ever going to find. The Skyline Drive area, whether you're just doing it for the fishing or whether you're just doing it to uh, experience the, that part of the state of Utah, it's just beautiful, pristine, um, one, of the, one of the nicest views you'll ever see from up on top. Oh, yeah. And you know what? If you don't have a machine, just go down and talk to Greg Wayman at Skyline Recreation right there in Sterling. He rents everything. Stay at the Manti House in Manti. Um, talk to Steve... Uh, McKiff down there and uh, get an Arapine map and then just go up on the mountain and come back and stay and eat good food right there in Manti and Ephraim and you'll have an incredible adventure. I think it's one truly one of the real hidden treasures of of Utah is that area right there. Um, I just don't think it gets utilized and we hope you guys get up and try it because it's just beautiful. Well we're going to get a chance to see the show tonight. Uh, 11.05, right after Talking Sports on KUTV Channel 2. It is Hooked on Utah. And, um, again, it's one of those those shows that you just, uh, you know, you look at in retrospect. We had a great time shooting it. I mean, it was so much fun while we were actually physically out there shooting it. Although, if I remember rightly, didn't we get dumped on with a rainstorm coming coming back? I think we got soaked. Yeah, we did have a pretty good rainstorm on the way back, and that's the beauty of that summer month. I love that, the big, you know, thunder bumpers that roll in and dump on you and then leave, and the fishing gets good again, and it's just a blast. Yeah, I, and I think we went, if I'm not mistaken, was it August? Did we go August or early September? We went, and the colors were starting to change at least a little bit. I just, uh, I've got this vague image of being up on top and just looking at this swath of color that was out in front of us, and maybe that's another, yep. maybe, I wasn't sure if, uh, you know, hey, listen, the short-term and long-term memory are both going <laughs> these days, so I'm not so sure. They all blend together. <laughs> I'm not. Hey, I'm right there with you. Won too many games without the helmet for me. So <laughs> sometimes it all blends together. Well, that's that's tonight, right? Eleven oh five, right after talking sports on KUTV Channel Two. Yep, I hope you'll join us. You know, it's holiday season; everybody's busy. But take a minute, sit back, relax, enjoy tonight's adventure because it's a good one. All right, sounds good, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right, Merry Christmas to all of you, and uh, we'll see you next week. You got it. That's Gary Winterton. Be sure and check it out tonight on KUTV Channel 2. Uh, it was a great trip. And if you haven't seen that area of the state, the Skyline Drive, um, you definitely want to see it. Hey, listen, when we come back, we've got Phil Lyman who will be joining us. So we'll be talking about ATV, speaking of riding the, uh, uh, that area up, uh, up Skyline Drive, and some of the other roads that uh, people, especially the sewer group, would like to close for us so uh, we'll have that when we come back stick around final segment of the show welcome back everybody boy we've had a busy morning huh we started talking about fish stocking with the division of wildlife we started talking then we talked about christmas gifts with george and we talked about uh, about going up on the skyline drive and kind of reprising that 
with uh, Gary Winterton for tonight's Hooked on Utah. Now we're going to finish up with what I think is a huge issue that's coming up. And that is, uh, first of all, we have got the legislature coming, and that that is always big. Um, but we also have a uh, something going on with the uh, with the federal government and SUA. It's always going on. So who do we go to? We go to the guy who, unfortunately, has had firsthand experience with that, and will also have firsthand experience in our legislature. And that is Phil Lyman, the former San Juan County Commissioner, who's now the legislator for that area of the state. So, Phil, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me on. It's a, it. it is a pleasure. It is a pleasure. Um, Let's talk about the legislature first. Uh, you, it's coming up, obviously, um, you've got uh, on a on an annual basis. We have to deal with those those bills that affect our access and our ability to enjoy the outdoors, especially from uh, whether we're sitting on top of an ATV or sitting in a side by side. Anything we should be concerned about coming into this this legislative session? No, access is under attack, and and, and people are starting to recognize that. Recognize that. That it's you know not just an oversight but an actual attempt to take people off the land and <clears throat> so the the ATV community UTV community has gotten pretty involved and and now you've got people that like to ride e-bikes and things like that that are finding out oh that's against the rules too and in a way all of the restrictions that have been on us for a long time especially down in places like San Juan County people are starting to recognize that hey this is just not this is just not going to work for for people who love to get out and see the land, and 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 so what I what I see happening in a good way is that is that the people that see things differently than Sue are starting to speak up and mobilize. You know, that's a great point that you mentioned, uh, and I think that's the thing that is going to help us when it was restricted to to people who enjoyed side by sides or ATVs. It's not a very narrow part of the community, especially out here, but it is maybe across the country. But when you start dealing with e-bikes and things of that nature, all of a sudden you start expanding those restrictions. And somebody says, hey, wait a minute, that's my group that we're talking about. Yeah. But I can't now. Exactly. I can't do it. And you do. Yeah. You, you get the the feeling that maybe we might find some allies from people who typically had not been uh, with us uh, in terms of the uh, philosophy, but now they're saying, "Whoa, wait a minute! My ox is being gored as well." You know this uh, this last thing we had with the OHUs on in national national parks. Mm-hmm. That if they're legal, street legal in Utah, then they're street legal in the roads on the national parks. And and the secretary came out and said, <clears throat> "You know, gave the order to allow them, and then reversed the order a week later." But what that did was kind of revealed that. The people that don't want the OHVs in the national parks simply don't. They don't just dislike OHVs. They like they dislike people that own OHVs. Yeah. It doesn't matter if they're quiet. It doesn't matter if they're if they're obeying the laws. It just comes down to like this uh, kind of a discrimination against a class of uh, vehicle owners, which is which is again revealing and helpful to the dialogue to say, hey, we're not talking about rational people here. We're talking about ideo- ideological. Uh, driven policy, and, and that's not that's not good policy. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. It is <clears throat> it is not the the OHV is actually used as an excuse in my mind, at least for people uh, of the other side to. I mean, they think of they think of us as the quote deplorables, and and you know, yeah. I mean, that is 
the the manifestation is the vehicle that is the ATV or the or the side by side but it really is how they identify the person who's utilizing it and i think it's interesting yeah. if you start to it find people with e-bikes that start to become considered deplorable by a certain group they're going to start going whoa wait a minute you know, I didn't yeah. mind it when it was that redneck in the MAGA hat. I, did, I didn't mind it when Sue was talking about it. But, but hey, I, I'm, I'm the dad, and I just like to ride an e-bike because, you know, I'm 55 years old or older, and, and, um, I, and I can't ride as much as I used to. The, the, I'm, not, I'm not one of those people. And yet you're considered and put in that same pigeonhole by this group of, of 20 or 30-somethings that want you off the mountain. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's like I say, it's just it's, it's a total dogma. There's no there's no intelligence behind it. It's just kind of this. We don't we don't like OHVs or the people that own them, and, and they're evil and they're awful, and that's what they go on. Now I I get the SUA uh, emails. They're always fun because you know if I just need a. You know, it's either that or watch one of the stand-up comedians on uh, on Netflix. You know, I can I can have as good a time. The only thing is, it's a little more scary with the sewer because I figure they're going to impact my life. But I got the one there. They want the BLM to uh, they they want to get a hold of the BLM and tell them that um, not not to pave or not to utilize or let Utah utilize, for example, the Manganese Road, which is uh, uh, the southwest corner of the state. Uh, it's a 10 mile stretch. They want them to, uh, they want people to call. Actually what they want is money, uh, but they want the state of Utah to, uh, not be allowed to take care of some of these roads, which are the RS 2477 roads that have been there for over a hundred years. They want that. And they also, I guess we, the, the state has applied to, um, to put a highway through red cliffs, uh, and, uh, they want, they want folks to call, and uh, and protect the desert tortoise, and so not put a road through red cliffs as well. Um, you're getting sewer again. We thought maybe with the the uh, Trump administration that we would slow them down a little bit. That hasn't happened. I mean, they, that's just galvanized their efforts at fundraising and everything else. They're not getting the same results, but they are certainly putting in more effort than they were. Yeah. Um. No question about that, and it's 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 one of those things. It's, as you know, Sua they they like to kind of take hostage, take hostages, and then they'll, they'll take a, a trail and, and to shut it down and recapture down in, in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a perfect example. You got twenty seven miles of recapture canyon. They decide we want to close down three miles that sits next to Blanding because that's what Blanding is. That's what's important to them. And they didn't want recapture. They wanted Cedar Mesa, but they wanted to kind of like take something that was important to the people and just hold it hostage until they say uncle and, and, and give in to, to what they want. It's, it's, yeah, I've got, I've got less respect now for sure than I, than I had a year ago. And, and that was hard to do. Respect for me. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's just, yeah. It's, it's really hard to do. Yeah. Well, Phil, uh, we, we appreciate you joining us. I mean, I guess it's one of those things that there's, there's no doubt it will be a constant battle, and they're always uh, they're always looking for money. They're always looking for funding, and they get it. They get it from the Hollywood set. Yeah. They get it from the East Coast liberals. Uh, I mean that 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 money comes into the uh, sewer coffers, and they spend it because Utah apparently is the number one target that they have as far as trying to stop us from utilizing our roads. No question, and and being able to gain some kind of local control again. So, and 
you didn't ask me a little bit about the, the upcoming session, and I kind of skipped over that, but I do have a, there's a, there's a couple of bills that are coming up to deal with personal property rights. I've got one that deals with eminent domain and, and trying to counter the Supreme Court's decision that says municipalities can kind of go and do whatever they want. And so the state legislature stepping up to say, you know, personal property rights have have a place in our society. And, you know, it yeah. always seems to kind of come back to, like, do we live in a free society? Do we have government that's kind of consent to the people? And, you know, or do we have people that are, you know, using cars? You know? And I would love to push back against any groups that are, you know, exercising that kind of, you know, domination over people and, and hostage-taking like SUA or the BLM or, or any of those groups that just seem to have overstepped their boundaries. And I'd love for the legislature to have more bills that kind of have that same flavor, and, and we're seeing a few of them more and more all the time. Well, Phil, we appreciate you joining us. Uh, hopefully we can uh, stay in touch with you throughout the session, and um, and we can get another opportunity to have you come visit with us. We'll talk about some of the bills that are there and things that we uh, need to be vigilant on, but uh, just knowing we have you up there from a personal standpoint makes me sleep a lot easier, because we know we got at least one friend, and I know you're not alone up there. You do have others, but be surprised at how many people in this state um, have, uh, especially yeah. at the national level now, have uh, have been the wolf in sheep's clothing who portrayed themselves as one thing and then got back uh, to Washington and did something completely yeah. different. So uh, I yeah, thank you in yeah. advance for your for your efforts. And uh, well, and I'm wondering, well, uh, maybe, well, you, maybe you, you need to be in Washington for us as well. <laughs> oh, that seems like, uh, like the worst of all scenarios. I do get fired up sometimes and think, oh, I mean, that's, I, didn't, I didn't seek public office because I... You know, one to be in public office, right. you see things that are happening, and it's like this isn't all right. <laughs> Yeah, well, lots of that to go around. Well, let's let's talk about let's talk about Washington when that next cycle comes around because we definitely need a change at least by one up there. So, uh, but again, my friend, thanks for the help that you give us up on the hill. Thank you. I appreciate your perspective, and yeah, reach out to me anytime if, if I can ever. Add my my two bits. I'm glad to do it. All right. Thanks again. That's Phil Lyman, uh, state legislator and uh, and good friend to the outdoor community. And that is going to do it for us. We are done. Want to thank Phil for joining us this morning. Want to thank uh, Randy Opplinger, the sport fish coordinator for the state of Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. Want to thank uh, George Sommer and Gary Winterton as always. Most importantly, thanks to you for listening and uh, for joining us every Saturday morning. We'll be back next Saturday, same time. Eight, right here, 97.5 The Zone. Till then, my friends, get out. Enjoy what we have left of this holiday season. Get out, maybe find some water, soft or otherwise. And we'll see you next week. As always, you have been warned.